Welcome to the AIM Horsemanship Podcast. From science-based horse training and behaviour to just connecting and having fun with our horses in general. I'm always learning so I hope you enjoy coming along for this horsemanship journey with me. In this episode I had the pleasure of speaking to the lovely Lauren Mass. Lauren is absolutely amazing and really has her foot in both worlds of um, behaviour and the sort of more medical and veterinary side of the horse world. Um, So this gave her some amazing insights and the conversation we had was just super enlightening and I learned so much and it was just amazing to hear about all the research she's doing and um, everything she's studying as well as like her thoughts on the sort of horse behaviour world and the horse veterinary world and... um, Unfortunately, the first time we recorded our conversation on Zoom, the audio wasn't supported in the format that I was trying to download it in. Um, So the audio failed, basically. You couldn't hear anything Lauren was saying. Um, So Lauren very kindly sent me her audio as voice messages, um, which is really nice of her and really amazing because it means that we can still listen to the conversation. Um, So yeah, um, the link to Lauren's social medias will be in the episode description, and I hope you enjoy listening. Hey, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm Lauren. I'm from Sacramento, California in the United States, and I am currently an animal biology graduate student at the University of California, Davis, and executive director of Cantor California, which is a nonprofit organization focused on rehoming thoroughbreds that are coming off the racetrack. Um, I also have a small teaching and training business, and I am a mom of three thoroughbreds myself. Awesome. Okay. So, um, yeah, thank you. So next question, um, is sort of like trying to find out how you got to where you are now, I guess. Um, and it was really interesting to hear your story yesterday and it was it really pulled at my heartstrings as well with about the, um, thoroughbred and like the one who was going to go for meat and was bought for the price of his meat. And it was also so interesting to hear about all your studies and how reinforcing you find learning. Um, and it's so amazing that you find learning so reinforcing because like I mentioned yesterday, I'm sorry to like repeat myself again, but um, yeah, it's so like sad how a lot of children in the schooling system end up hating education and having this sort of resentment towards it. Um, and it's amazing, I guess, when you find like something you're interested in, like I know for me with like behavioral stuff, and I'm sure for you it's the same, um, especially with your veterinary stuff as well. It's just so reinforcing, just the process of learning. Uh, anyway, it kind of went on a tangent there. So um. Yeah, I'd love to hear, like, from the start, your introduction to horses and then how you got to where you are now. Okay, I'm going to apologize in advance because I think this will be a bit long-winded, but um, I got into horses uh, for my 10th birthday. I had been begging my parents for years to let me ride, and um, it started off as weekly riding lessons, but it quickly turned into multiple lessons a week, and by the end of my 10th year, um, I was leasing my first horse. And his name was Sonny, and he was an off-track thoroughbred. At the time, I think he was about 21. Um, So he had had a good, long career um, doing lots of different jobs. But uh, as a senior citizen, he became my guy. So um, he was really kind of a special horse for me because he inspired a lot of the path that I've been on since then. Um, he was sent to slaughter after retiring from racing at the age of five and his owner actually purchased him off of a truck that was headed for a processing plant. Um, so from a really young age, I became really interested in equine welfare, although I completely admit that I I didn't know that that was the phrase for it at the time. Um, but that's something that really shocked me. I had no idea that horses were sent 
to slaughter. I, I, you know, that's not something that had ever crossed my mind. And so when I heard his story when I was 10, it really shaped my life in a lot of ways. Um, but, um, as special as Sunny was to me, um, I have to say that I learned the most from my first horse, um, Dante, who my parents got for me when I was 12. I had him for 10 years and he inspired so much of my journey. Um, and I completely admit I, I did so much wrong when I was a child and a teenager and a lot of it was at his expense. Um, but he taught me so much and, um, he's been gone for almost five years, but he still continues to teach me to this day. So he's a really special, special guy to me too. I guess sharing more about my professional journey. Um, I was really sure from an early age that I was going to be a veterinarian. And then by the time I fell in love with horses officially, when I got to start riding, then I was, you know, I was destined to be an equine vet. And so um, I followed a pretty straight path to being a veterinarian. I attended UC Davis for my Bachelor of Science degree in animal science with an equine emphasis. Um, I graduated in 2018 and then was accepted into veterinary school at Midwestern University in Arizona. Unfortunately, the cost to attend was going to be absolutely crippling. Tuition without the cost of living included was going to be $65,000 U.S. dollars annually. Uh, it's a four-year program and interest accrues as you're going to school. So I was looking at coming out of school with, I mean, with the cost of living included, it was going to be close to half a million dollars in debt. And so I decided not to go due to finances and was pretty heartbroken at the time. While I was in college, I had been teaching riding at the UC Davis Equestrian Center. And at this point in time, after I decided not to go to vet school, I needed to start working. So I decided to continue teaching at a couple of local riding facilities. And what started is teaching lessons and conducting training rides, kind of like in this interim period where I didn't know really what was going to be next for me. Um, it led me to diving deep into equitation science and equine behavior and really just trying to be the best teacher for both the horses and the humans as I possibly could. So I ended up starting my own business, Equine Endeavor, and now have my own small group of clients that I've been working with since about 2019. Um, and it's it's been a really, really excellent journey. And I feel like more growth has happened for me in these past couple of years than ever before. But I still wanted to be learning and I craved academia and just like being in like a academic environment. So I started taking courses through University of Guelph's equine online program, which is absolutely wonderful. And I recommend to anybody who is interested. And I obtained a certificate in equine welfare. Um, then a position opened up at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine in an equine performance lab. And I applied and got the position as a lab manager. So from March of 2021 to September of this year, I was working part-time at the veterinary school while also running my teaching and training business. I also became a certified equine massage therapist in the spring of this year as well, which had some personal motives behind it. I really wanted to do the program so that I could massage my own horses. Um, 
but it's been a wonderful addition to my business and I really love it because it's a way that I can communicate with the horses um, in a different way than I was able to previously. So it's kind of like added on an extra way for me to communicate with them. But I still felt like something was missing. So um, the vet and scientist that I work for or was working under, she encouraged me to apply to graduate school. So I did. And I began my program in September. So I'm studying sudden cardiac death in thoroughbred racehorses, uh, which I'm sure you could guess is something that is extremely interesting to me. So I think... I think that's everything that I can think of um, that's kind of gotten me to where I am now. I'm sure I'm missing a few things, but this is why I call my business Equine Endeavor. There has been lots of endeavors for sure. Okay, so I remember you saying when you got to like this part in your um, sort of journey, I remember you mentioning the research that you're doing. And I remember asking you about... Um, the research that you're doing on racehorses and it was so amazing to hear because um yeah it would be really awesome if you could sort of go over that if you don't mind and explain sort of uh what you're researching and how you're researching it and I remember you saying that you're looking at I think you said I think you said it was the cardiovascular tissue of deceased racehorses I'm pretty sure but sorry if I'm getting that wrong um yeah I don't know all the medical terminology um but um yeah I'd really appreciate if you wouldn't mind like sort of going over that again and um explaining that and like I mentioned yesterday I feel like the horse sports world there are so many so many welfare issues um in general and a lot of issues in general and I feel like a lot of people's first solution or their first thought is either to sort of blindly defend the industry because that's their livelihood or their passion or they've just been conditioned to sort of accept the practices or if they haven't been conditioned to accept the practices I feel like they sort of um uh like they want to just like sort of abolish the entire industry which obviously like isn't always feasible especially because like unfortunately although a lot of problematic although there are a lot of problematic practices in some equine sports it's a lot of people's livelihoods and I don't think it's going to just get shut down in the blink of an eye and I don't necessarily think it has to there are a lot of changes that we can make and um it was really amazing to hear that you're looking into like you know, you're not like not just putting your blinders on and being like horses die and, and like don't want to hear it or or at the same time, you're not just being like horses die. So we need to stop this altogether. You're being like horses are passing away. So what are the solutions? Why is this happening? And how can we prevent it and make um, the situation as good as possible for the animals and prevent any unwanted um, welfare issues? I don't know. I, I, yeah, sorry. I'm just kind of repeating myself. But um, yeah, I'd love if you could sort of go over that again and explain your perspective also on the welfare issues in the horse sports industries. And the research you're doing was amazing. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, absolutely. The research is so fascinating. I will share um, a little bit about what I'm doing. So I'm studying sudden cardiac death in thoroughbred racehorses. And the reason why it is of interest for me to study is because when we talk about horses suddenly dying at the racetrack, which we know happens, a big group of them die because of catastrophic orthopedic injuries. Um, but there's another group that die um, from cardiac death. And so I'm looking at that group and I'm specifically um, 
looking at samples of their cardiac tissue and trying to see if there's any indication um, in kind of a, a micro scale um, in the tissue that is indicative of that the horse may be at risk for sudden cardiac death. So essentially, it would be fantastic if we could reduce the number of horses that are dying in this manner. And so that's what my research is aimed at. And unfortunately, I have to keep it a little bit vague because um, that's university protocol is that it has to be confidential until it's published. But it's really, really exciting. And, you know, there's so many problematic areas, not just in the thoroughbred industry, but across all sport horse industries. I mean, actually, I might even say in any situation where humans have taken a horse into captivity, even if they're not riding the horse, even if it's not a sport horse, there's problematic welfare concerns, right? And so for me, being able to be this like small piece of a puzzle to improve the welfare of racehorses is really exciting for me um, because the racing industry is home to so many horses and so many people that, you know, it's their livelihood. It's, it's how they live. And so I don't think it's going anywhere. And so how can I be a part of it to improve the well-being of these horses? And if my research can make me a part of it in the best way possible by reducing the number of horses that die suddenly, then that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm yeah, like I said, I'm just so impressed with your um research. And so my next question is um about medical issues and their correlation because you kind of have a foot in both camps of sort of the medical and the behavioral stuff um so I wanted to like get your perspective on um medical issues and how they affect behavior and um because like it is difficult when like behaviorists like obviously there's not a lot we can do about this because it's their specialized area although uh behavior and medical stuff I feel like they just marry up so well like you said and you really wanted to marry up those both those industries and that's so amazing because um you get people who specialize in behavior um who can't diagnose medically like you said um sorry I'm kind of I don't want to like <laughs> um say all the stuff that you said because I want to hear that uh, hear how you um but um yeah, so yeah, I'd love to hear about medical issues and behaviour because I spoke to you a bit yesterday about Penny uh, and her behavioural issues and how sort of the medical professionals and the behavioural professionals hadn't been able to sort of link up and come to the conclusion of her arthritis um, because she kind of had intermittent lameness, which was very subtle. In fact, she wasn't lame until like a few months ago and then she sort of had the subtle intermittent lameness, which gradually got worse and it turns out she had had arthritis for a bit longer than we um, thought. And obviously we investigated that as much as we could. So we found it and now we're doing everything we can uh, to make her as comfortable as possible. And um, it's just, I just think it'd be so like amazing if you could have like, instead of being like, you call a behaviorist and they say you need to get your medical issues checked. So you do that, but then you get the behaviorist in and there's still under undiagnosed medical stuff, which the behaviorist can't sort of diagnose. And then, so you like try and do behavior modification, which maybe exacerbates the issue. I don't know. But um, yeah, I just like I, like I said, I'd love for you to talk a bit about that. 
I think my dream would be to become a veterinarian at some point in the future. Of course, this is like an absolute, like, I feel like a far-fetched dream, but I'd love to someday attend vet school and also be an equine behaviorist and be able to really marry those two things together and be a veterinary behaviorist for horses because I feel like the two groups are separate, right? You have your equine veterinarian and then you have your equine behaviorist. And it's so unfortunate because your behaviorist can do a consult and has so much knowledge, but unfortunately if the horse is in pain, they can't diagnose that, right? And so even if as a behaviorist you say, oh, that horse, you know, obviously is lame on its left front leg, you really can't say that as a behaviorist because you're not a veterinarian, right? You, you can't diagnose. And as a veterinarian, you don't really get much behavioral knowledge from the vet school curriculum, as far as I know. Um, I, I know about UC Davis's vet school curriculum a bit. I'm not sure about other places in the world, but it's not a huge focus because in vet school, you've got so much information that you've got to learn in four years. And so it just seems so difficult. And what if you're trying to modify a behavior, but it's exacerbating some sort of pain because your horse actually has something going on that's kind of an underlying reason for the behavior. So I definitely think there's like a really interconnected relationship there and that so much of the behaviors that we see in horses that are unwanted on the ground, yes, but um, gosh, I would say so often with the undersaddle behaviors that are unwanted, even the very basic ones like a horse being spooky and or, and or extremely tense. I think so often that those behaviors are indicative of pain, but we don't understand that, you know? And so being able to be someone in the industry that could marry those two things together would be so fantastic. Like, like I said, that would be just a dream. Um, yeah, definitely. That's so cool. And something that I forgot to mention, I think, in the voice messages that I um, mentioned in the Zoom call yesterday was the fact that I don't know what it's like where you are, but around here, a lot of the vets have started working with um, Gemma Pearsons, which Justine mentioned in the course. Um, so they're learning about sort of clicker training and behavioural consultations. And apparently Gemma has offered, if they have a veterinary case, it's really difficult for them to treat. Um, Gemma has apparently offered to do like remote consultations of them which is amazing and it's so cool to see the horse world is moving in that direction. And also, if you think about a vet going out um, and then they have a more like behaviourally minded approach and maybe like plant a seed in the owner sort of thing to like get the owner thinking about it and then they maybe research it and they sort of get into behaviour as the horse is being treated for medical issues. So in that way, they can kind of combine the two, which is fantastic. Um, however, as I said in the Zoom call, and I've... Um, we spoke about of Justine in the course is there is a slight danger I think that um, when you're giving like professionals behavior information and information on clicker training which is obviously a very powerful tool I do feel like there is a slight danger that um, 
they could take that and run with it without perhaps learning about everything and about over arousal and stuff um and also about the more complex issues and also about you know the amygdala hijack that can happen if you pair clicker training with pain and the association that can come there and how that can sort of hijack the amygdala and then when you train in future there's that association um but yeah, like I said, it is fantastic to see the behaviour while moving this way. And I do feel like a lot of people who start sort of R-plus training do go through the stage where they accidentally cause a bit of over-arousal and then they go back and learn more. And although that's not ideal, it is a natural step in the learning process. And I know I've definitely been through that. Um, but like I said, I remember with Penny when they tried to do a little bit of click training with her, which is fantastic. Um, and they didn't exactly know that Penny that is R-plus trained. Um, so... Penny was getting a bit sort of over aroused and they were using polos which it's not ideal and she got a bit high-headed which is often a signal that she's about to rear. Um, rearing is a, has been a behavioural problem that we've worked a lot on and I did not want that to get like built back into a loop. Um, so I kind of had to sort of say you know she has a, um, a start button which is her neck rope on for the start of a training session and well not a start button because that'd be her saying it but anyway uh, an on cue I guess. Um, a context cue is what I was trying to say um and then she has the sort of the head down and away behavior and she chews her chaff and um in between cues she has to give you the start button which is her relaxing so that she doesn't get all this tension rising you know it's just complicated to explain and I 100% understand that they don't have the time to learn all of that um I just wanted to mention that there is sort of obviously the danger of um of that happening um of like them accidentally causing a bit of over arousal but like I said at least it's introducing it into the horse world and at least that gives the owner an opportunity to go further in their sort of behavioral edu education and start implementing it in their work with their horse which is fantastic and um also the fact that Gemma Pearson's is working with the vets is amazing because although it might cause a little bit of over arousal if the vets don't fully understand over arousal I mean at least it's they're doing a bit of counter conditioning and while the vet's there and giving the horse a bit more control and choice and making it a much more positive experience than if they were to sort of tie the horse down and give them trauma because my old pony molly actually got to the stage where she could recognize the sound of the vet's van coming and it really would get her a bit riled up because of the negative association however penny although she does have the negative association and I did notice after the vet visit that the head collar I had used for the vet visit she didn't want to put her head in which was interesting so I had to sort of counter condition that a bit um, although I do use different head collars for different circumstances so there's no sort of context being mixed up sort of thing um but yeah I mean I don't know it was, it was just amazing to see that she wasn't so triggered the next time the vets came she was sort of curious and interested and wanted to go up and do a bit of work with them um so yeah I don't know it's definitely moving in the right direction so yeah that's what I wanted to say on that and I remember yesterday I don't know if we've mentioned that in this conversation so far but I remember yesterday we mentioned um when vets obviously have such extensive knowledge in medical care which I really respect them so much for um however they maybe don't so much understand the more ethically minded behaviorally minded horse owners um training practices and the choice and control that they give the horse and um I remember we spoke a bit about that and I remember you mentioned um don't ever be afraid to switch professionals um so I just wanted to put that in there because I think I forgot to ask you that today but um I remember you mentioned don't ever be afraid to switch professionals because it's more important that you do what's best for your horse than it is to people please and stick with the same professional because you feel guilty or whatever um and I've definitely had 
experience with that and I totally understand where you're coming from and I definitely agree that sometimes you do have to switch professionals and sometimes sometimes it's worth the compromise to use a certain professional um stick with them even if they like for example they might have such extensive medical knowledge like more than anyone else but even if they don't understand behavior so much um it might be worth the compromise if you know what I'm saying but in some cases it's not so definitely be prepared to switch professionals I definitely agree with you on that one um Moving on from behavioural, well, not really, this is about a behavioural issue, but moving on from the medical side of behaviour in that, um, I wanted to discuss, I mean, I know you explained this to me yesterday and I just thought it was so interesting. I'd love for you to sort of go over it again. Is um, I remember Justine saying at the start of the mentorship on one of the first Zoom calls um, about your horse who had a issue and you got a consultation with Justine because he would sort of roll under the fence and get himself cast. Um like cast under the fence, I guess, like rolled under. Yeah, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how you described it, but it sounded like he sort of rolled under and got stuck under the fence and got cast there, which was so interesting. And I remember you said it was sort of, you thought maybe like a pacifier. And um, so, yeah. Uh, would you mind like maybe explaining that behaviour and like what you think, even though you're not exactly sure, like what you think may have caused it and um, what's happening with it now, if you don't mind? And um also like I found it so interesting that he would still do it even when he had like the big field with his friends and stuff and his behavioral needs were met um which is really interesting so yeah I'd love to hear about that this was actually my first experience with Justine which is what led me to enrolling in her um, behavior mentorship program but yeah so my horse Rain he's a four-year-old thoroughbred and I adopted him from a nonprofit organization that rescues thoroughbreds. And he actually was born there. His dam had been part of a breeding farm that had gone under and she showed up there in really horrid condition and fold out. And he actually had neonatal maladjustment syndrome, which they called dummy full syndrome, which I just hate. Um, so they had to do this squeeze method where they squeeze, like literally squeeze the foal, uh, which stimulated him to get up and start nursing. And then he was, I'll air quote, I'm air quoting right now, normal. Um, as soon as they did that squeeze on him. So he had a little bit of a rough start to life and then unfortunately his dam had to be euthanized um, when he was just a few months old so he had to be weaned really young and thankfully he was put out in a field with a bunch of other horses and and um so I think that was really good good for him but his beginning to life was really tough. And so I got him as a yearling and he got himself cast in on more occasions than I could even count. And in the springtime, I took him up to training and he was getting cast up there quite a bit. And I think kind of the the really interesting piece of this is that he could be in a multi-acre pasture with multiple other horses 
and he would choose to lie down next to the fence and get himself stuck under the fence. So this wasn't happening. Well, it, it did when he was stalled for, he got a little laceration and he had to be stalled for a bit and it happened in the stall as well. But this was happening for the most part, like out in the field, which was so fascinating. Like why is he not lying down further away from the fence? Like he's not learning. And, Whenever he would do it, he would lie down, kind of roll into it, get his feet under it. Some couple times he got his like neck under, which was terrifying, but he never would thrash. As soon as he'd get underneath the fence, he would just lie there. So when he was up at training, I had this consult with Justine because I was, I just felt like there had to be a reason, right? Like horses don't just do things. There's always a motive. There's always a reason. And so Justine and I had a really long conversation and, you know, we kind of thought, well, maybe, um, it's like a, a bit of a pacifier for him. So when he gets stressed, he potentially has a spike in histamine, gets kind of itchy and then needs to lie down and gets himself stuck. And then almost like relaxes because it's a bit of a pacifier for him. So I don't know. We never really quite sorted out why, but that was kind of our thought. And then he came home from training and he hasn't done it since then. So I am feeling a little bit like it's almost like a, indicator of how positive or negative his welfare is. And so I feel a little bit guilty about him going up to training. And I'm wondering if it was not a great experience for him because I feel like in those situations, there's what, there's what the client is told and what the client sees when they're there. And then there's what the horse experiences. And those two things aren't always the same, but he has been, completely normal since coming home, um, over the summer. So he's been home for about six months and like every day, mid morning, I go out there and he's snoozing in the middle of the field. So I'm not sure, but he, it was fascinating. I've, I've never met a horse that's done this before. And you know, they all teach us something, right? And I, I still don't know the answer, but it was a really fascinating case for sure. Would you like to sort of mention your social medias and where people can find you and find out more about you? Um, and also your canter CA thing. I'm sure people would be really interested in that. Um, and I remember you talking about uh, finding homes for retired racehorses, which was really amazing and inspirational to me because it, it's so sad to see an industry where so many, I mean, I'm not sure exactly where, like I remember you said the aftercare is quite good where you are for racehorses. Um, but I do like sadly know some places where it's not so good, and it's so amazing that um, these horses uh, aren't just thrown away um, by the industry, and that they can be given good lives that they deserve. Um, so yeah, anyway, so I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but thanks so much for talking with me again, and it was great to have the Zoom call with you last night. Um, even though it didn't record, that didn't like I said, that didn't take any value out of the conversation. It was so worth having, and it's so inspirational to speak to people like you, and it really gives me hope for the horse world. Um, I remember saying uh, about the Zoom calls that we did with the mentorship course, that it just it felt like 
it felt like a community and it felt like you know you could just sound off without worrying about hurting not really worrying about hurting someone but um worrying about like you know getting bashed or something for being a tree hugger sort of thing you could just sound off about any worries you were having in the horse world and it was so non-judgmental and I feel like everyone was sort of of the same mindset and everyone was at different stages of their journey but everyone was so supportive and it really gives me hope for the horse world um to see to see that happening and people supporting each other and I just realized I forgot to mention um maybe before you mentioned your socials I forgot to ask you um I remember yesterday we were talking about your plans for future and it was so exciting and I know you said you're not exactly sure what path you're heading down but you really yeah I really um was inspired by what you said so I'd love if you could sort of explain your future plans so I started volunteering for Cantor in 2017 and I was so excited to be involved with thoroughbreds again I just I mean they're my favorite breed of horse I just absolutely love them and I quickly fell in love and when I say quickly I mean the first time I saw him <laughs> with my now horse Gallon. Um, he was a canter horse and I met him in the fall of 2017 and I became his volunteer and um, went out and worked with him each day and he was he was kind of a sad horse when he arrived and he wasn't in good shape and he really, I, I know I already said that Sonny and Dante inspired me, but Gallon really inspired me too. And I just, I see so much use in him, even though I don't ride him. Um, he's just a wonderful horse. And so I adopted him in the spring of 2018 when he was cleared for adoption by Cantor's veterinarian. So he has been my horse ever since then, but he's really been my horse since the first day I saw him. I, I knew I wasn't going to let him go. Um, and I've been involved with Cantor since then in a myriad of different ways. So I have worked with the horses and I've done a bunch of stuff kind of on the admin side. And then in the spring of this year, I was voted on as the director, which was a huge compliment. I, I love the organization. There's actually a fantastic book, if anyone's interested, about how Cantor was started. It's nationwide in the United States, and there's a bunch of affiliates um, throughout the states. So Cantor California is just one affiliate, but um, there's a book called Saving Baby, and it is about how Cantor got started. So if you're interested in thoroughbreds, it's a really quick read. And it's it'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. Um, but it's, it's a really good origin story about why this charity was started. And something that is incredible to me here in the United States is that we have an incredible group of aftercare charities. I mean, it is really strong here. And something else that I think is really worth mentioning is that a lot of our funding comes from the racing industry itself. So they care about what happens to these horses after they retire from the track, which is incredible to me. And uh, one of our partners uh, one of their slogans is they say aftercare is not an afterthought 
And that is something that is so important to me because I think these horses are incredible and they have so much to give after they finish racing. You know, so many of them retire so young and they have so much life and purpose left. And so being a part of Cantor and now acting as director has been also a big part of this endeavor of mine for sure. And, um, I hope the program keeps growing and we're kind of picking up some momentum now and I hope we can just continue to transition and help as many horses as possible find homes. There is seriously nothing better to me than finding a horse their forever home, especially I always have a super soft spot for the horses like Gallon that are, you know, the um, the war horses, right, that, that raced so much and gave so much and finding them soft places to land means the world to me. Oh goodness, my plans for the future. Well, I I don't think I've mentioned this yet. I absolutely love to teach. I'm sure you're thinking Lauren loves everything. <laughs> but I love teaching. That's a theme throughout this entire story of mine and so I I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I want to find a way to tie together all of my passions. And I feel like, of course, horses are at the very center of it. And helping horses is at the center of that. But I, I, you know, I love school. And so continuing on in some capacity, whether that's a PhD program where I can become a professor of equine science somewhere or um, continuing on to veterinary school um, and and also no matter what I plan to continue learning about behavior and I would love to offer consultations and be a equine behaviorist um, and I, I think I could do that with a PhD or with a DVM, of course. Um, but you know, no matter what path I go helping horses and being able to teach others how to help horses is something that's really important to me because I think that's something that can have like a, a trickle down effect, right? Like if I can teach others about horses, then they can teach others. And if I can help make the world a better place for horses, and if that's something that can last, you know, years and years from now, even after I'm gone or not doing, let's say I'm, I'm 90 and I'm retired, if I'm lucky to live that long. Um, and if things that I taught continue on for generations and generations, like that would be my dream. So where, what's next? <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, I am a lifelong learner, that's for sure. And I think for now, the plan is going to be to apply to veterinary school and give that a go again. I'm going to try to get into UC Davis so that I can have in-state tuition, which is about half the price. Still quite expensive, but a little bit more on the reasonable side, I suppose. Um, yeah, but we'll see. The past few years have been 
absolutely wild. I have done more than I could have dreamed of. And something that I always try to remind myself is if 10 year old you taking that first writing lesson could see what you're doing now, she would be thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. Thank you so much, Anna. I really appreciate you having me on. And it was so nice getting to chat with you. I'm so glad that we met from our course with Justine. And you'll definitely have to stay in touch. And to everyone that's listening, I would love to hear from you. My social media pages are at Equine Endeavor on Instagram or on Facebook, uh, Equine Endeavor LLC. And if you're interested in following along with Cantor California, our Instagram is at Cantor CA and our Facebook is under Cantor California. So again, thank you so much, Anna. And, uh, Thank you to everyone for listening to all of my rambles. Um, And yeah, thanks so much for talking to me. And hopefully we'll stay in touch and good luck for the future. Thank you for listening to the AIM Horsemanship podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you found it helpful or if it resonated with you in any way, I'd really appreciate if you could share it so that other people can hear it. Um, If you would like to check out any homemade Um, crafts or personalised gifts please check out Creations of Cornwall on Facebook also if you'd like to follow me on Instagram to see videos of the horses and updates on what we're doing my Instagram is underscore underscore horsemanship underscore thanks again for listening and I hope to see you next time